My name is Carrie. Uh, if you don't know, I am one of the pastors here at Restoration Road Church, and it is a joy to gather with you, even virtually. It would be much better for you to be here uh, in this building all gathered together, but this has been a highlight of um, this stay-at-home time for my family, is getting to open the Word, knowing that other brothers and sisters are studying the same thing at the same time. Like most of you, my family has not been going many places. A big trip is maybe a walk around the block or a, a long drive, but uh, we, we found ourselves at times sort of starting to, to talk like prisoners, right? Like we're, we're, we're plotting, what are we going to do when we get out? And when we think about future trips or future things that, that we may do, one of the places that always comes up for us is Arizona, right? Guaranteed sunshine, always a a pool, and we love going down to Arizona. And last time we were down there was in September, and we had planned to make the three-hour drive from Scottsdale to the Grand Canyon. Never been to the Grand Canyon, always wanted to go. Um, but of course, the, the night before we were supposed to make that drive, my uh, oldest son starts getting a little sick, and I was not about to spend three hours in the car with a, a kid that's throwing up. And so I've still not been to the Grand Canyon, but I know from looking at photographs, you know it's not the same thing. You know it's vast. You know it's epic. And you know you have to stand there. You have to be there to fully experience that. And in speaking about the Grand Canyon and how the majesty of nature points us to God, Pastor John Piper says, nobody stands on the edge of the Grand Canyon in order to feel bigger or better about ourselves. Do you know why we go there? Because we were written to be satisfied with splendor and not self. We were created in a law written on our hearts to be infinitely, eternally, fully, joyfully satisfied in a grand splendor, not a great self. You see, there's something about standing before the majesty of creation that reminds us that we are small and God is great. That's why the psalmist writes that the heavens declare the glory of God. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 says, even, even if some don't know Jesus by name, by looking at creation, they know that there is a God and that he is great. Well, in today's text, we, we shift from looking at the parables and teachings of Jesus, and we look at this miraculous power of Christ at the end of Mark chapter 4 as he calms a mighty storm at sea. And specifically today, we're going to look at Jesus' power over nature. We're going to look at what it says about who he is, and we're going to look at what how the disciples respond to Jesus' power and how that can serve to instruct us. And so if you would, open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Our story picks up with Jesus wrapping up another full day of teaching. Jesus, since the commencement of his earthly ministry, had traveled all around the region of Galilee. He was working unceasingly to share the good news of his coming, of his kingdom, and he'd become a bit of a celebrity, right? He was teaching with authority, a teaching that the people had never heard. He was healing the sick, and so people wanted to hear and experience this Jesus. And so we read in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus had to start actually preaching offshore in a boat because the people were pressing in on him. They were going to crush him. And so that's where we find Jesus at the beginning of Mark chapter 4, preaching, and as we get to the end of the day and the end of that chapter of Mark 4, we see that Jesus in the boat with his disciples says, all right, let's wrap this up and head back out somewhere else. And so the disciples, not questioning Jesus, turn their ship across the Sea of Galilee and set off to the next destination. And that is when things start to get interesting. So the, the Sea of Galilee that they're traveling on in this boat, it sits about 700 feet below sea level. It's in this basin surrounded by mountains, and this causes rapidly changing weather. The only thing that I know of to compare it to is Lake Wenatchee. My, my family spends a lot of time at Lake Wenatchee. It's about uh, 30 minutes past Stevens Pass. And so there's a similar dynamic there. You can be sitting on the beach at Lake Wenatchee, and because it's just over the Cascades, it can be a calm, beautiful, 70-degree day. And the next thing you know, you look down lake, and you can see this dark line moving up the lake, and boom, all of a sudden, you're sitting in 30-mile-an-hour winds where there was not a stitch of wind the moment before. This is the sort of situation that the disciples and Jesus find themselves in. And in verse 37, we read, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already sinking. All of a sudden, without warning, these gale force winds descend on the Sea of Galilee. And the, the word that is used to describe this storm is the same word that's used in other ancient texts to describe hurricanes. We know that this is a significant storm, if, if nothing else, because of how the disciples respond, right? Most of the disciples had grown up on the sea. They were fishermen, and so to see them freaking out, we know that, that this is a serious storm. And in that moment, the disciples find themselves questioning their willingness to follow Jesus. We hear this in their tone in verse 38, where they ask Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? Suddenly, they're, they're unsure of their inclination to follow Jesus. They're not sure that it was a good idea. In this moment of hardship, Jesus' goodness is called into question by his disciples. They think, why are we in this situation? If Jesus cares for us, if, if we've obeyed him, why, why do we find ourselves in this storm? And that brings us to our, our first observation of the day, which is a timely one for us. And that is that 
following Jesus does not mean that we will avoid trouble in this life. I'm afraid that far too many pastors over the years have read this text and said, you know what, I know what the main point of this text is. Jesus will calm all the storms of life. And I suppose that there is a a thread of truth in that in as much as we serve a sovereign God. And Romans 8.28 tells us that he will work all things together for good for those who love him. But we must read the text if we read it to say that Jesus will protect us from any difficulty in this life. We know that to follow Jesus is not to live a life just full of sunshine and lollipops and and puppies, right? No, there will be joy in following Jesus, but there will also be tremendous hardship. And you need look no further than the disciples to see this. The the disciples had followed Jesus. They'd done what he asked. They'd set the, the ship out into the sea, and here they were in the middle of this storm. The storm, though, would seem insignificant. It would seem trivial in comparison with what was to come for the disciples following Jesus' death and resurrection. Christian tradition tells us that all of the disciples, apart from John, were martyred. We know that Nero was crucified. I'm sorry, we know that Peter was crucified upside down at the hands of Nero. We know that Thomas was pierced through with spears. James was stoned and clubbed to death. Matthias was burnt at the stake. The list goes on and on. And John, the only disciple not to be martyred, spent his final years in exile, imprisoned on the island of Patmos. And so to interpret this story by saying that Jesus will solve all your problems, he'll remove any trials from your life, it's to do a disservice to the narrative of Scripture and to the tens of thousands of Christians who have suffered and died for the name of Jesus. So-called preachers of the word sell people a bill of goods when they offer a Christian life that's free of trouble. Sounds good. I mean, sign me up for that, right? I I would take that. And sure, it may drive giving. It may bring them followers who mistakenly think that following Jesus will bring them material favor and, and abundance in this life. But we know that That is not necessarily the case. We know that we will have trouble because Jesus says as much. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus is with the disciples at the Last Supper, and he tells them point blank, hey, if the world persecuted and hated me, it will persecute and hate you. John 16 verse 33 says, in this world you will have trouble. We know that we will suffer as a result of, of following Jesus, yes, but we also will suffer, whether you follow Jesus or not, simply because we reside in a broken and sinful world. And as we encounter hardship, we will have to decide how will we respond. If you believe that following God means that you should be free of all hardship and, and trials, then how will you respond When your boss calls you into his office and says, hey, because of this economic downturn, we're going to have to let you go. How will you respond when the doctor calls you and says, the test came back positive, you're you're diseased, you're in a fight for your life. Or worse, for many of us, your child is sick, your family member is sick, they may not make it. 
How will you respond in the face of miscarriage or infertility, in the midst of depression or cancer? How will you stand when crippled by anxiety or fear or loneliness? Brothers and sisters, the only way that we can respond rightly in these sorts of heart-wrenching situations is if we have a Christian theology that allows for Christian suffering by a God who sovereignly works all things together for our good. All things. God works together layoffs, coronavirus, sin, broken relationships, all things sovereignly for the good of those who love him for his great namesake. And so while we will face hardship, we ought to be encouraged because John 16, does not end with, in this life you will have trouble, but rather Jesus continues and says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so in the face of trials, we can hope because last week, we celebrated this Savior who has risen, who has conquered sin and death, who has faced hardship and overcome. And so we can cry out with the Apostle Paul, where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Christ Jesus. This is our hope. Jesus is our hope. And so as we continue reading in the text, we might say, okay, the storm has come upon them. Jesus is their hope. Where, where is he, though? And Mark tells us that Jesus was in the stern of the boat, asleep on a cushion. This brings us to the second observation from the text, which is that Jesus is fully human. We see here a, a clear picture of Jesus' humanity. After a long day of working, of teaching, he's tired, can't keep his eyes open. And so he falls asleep. This is consistent with what Scripture teaches us about the nature of Jesus that Orthodox Christianity has held for 2,000 years, which is Jesus is human. He was born. He grew in wisdom and stature. He got hungry. He ate. He drank. He was tempted. He had human emotion. He cried. He got angry. And eventually, Jesus would die. The fact that our Savior experienced a fully human life is good news for us because it means that he can fully empathize with what we encounter in our lives. We see this truth beautifully depicted in Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14, where it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus understands what it is to face trials. He was betrayed. He was alone. He was hurt. He was tired. He longs to hear from you, to be your rock, to carry your burdens. He invites you 
to, to be, to come to him that he might be your help in times of need. And so I know many of you are in a season of suffering. And the good news is that we have a Savior who has suffered more than you and I ever could. Who was left on the cross to bear the wrath of God poured out on him for the sins of the world. Experiencing not just the physical pain of, of uh, crucifixion, but the spiritual and emotional pain of the wrath of God. If anyone understands your pain and suffering, it is Jesus. Approach him in prayer. Lay your burdens at his feet because he cares for you. So while we have established that Jesus was fully man, we know that he was not only man. and We'll look more at that in the text. And, but because he was man, he grew tired and he slept. We get that. But it, it's still strange that he sleeps in the middle of the storm, right? How, how can you be so calm in the middle of the storm? And I think that this is surely reflective of Jesus' faith. Jesus had a tranquil faith. He was at peace even in the middle of the storm, and he had no fear because he knew that his Father's sovereign plan would unfold perfectly to accomplish his good purposes. Jesus knew that God the Father had sent him to minister, to suffer, and to die. And he wasn't worried for one minute that a windstorm would derail, would interfere with his father's will. Renowned Southern Baptist missionary Lottie Moon once said, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal until my work is done. Do you have that sort of trust in God? That he will let nothing happen to you until he has accomplished exactly what he has purposed for you. What would that sort of faith, what would, what would that sort of belief do to our worry and anxiety? We, we read in Philippians chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul is saying, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, present your requests to God. And I was, as I was reading this and studying this this last week, it was pointed out that there's a caveat there. It says, don't be anxious about anything. Present your prayers and petitions to God. But how are we to do it? The text says, with thanksgiving. In thinking about that, how can we present our prayers, our requests, our worries, and our anxieties to God with thanksgiving when we don't know how he's going to answer them? We can do it because we can be thankful that he is sovereign and that he knows better than us what is best for our lives. And so we can approach him with our worries. We can approach him with our cares. We can approach him with our troubles, knowing that even if he doesn't answer them how we would like, he will answer them in the way that is best. So Jesus was at peace because he knew that God would do what was best in the midst of the storm. And while Jesus was asleep, what were the disciples doing? Well, we see their response in stark contrast to that of Jesus. And that brings us to our third observation, which is that the disciples were fearful in the face of the storm. They were fearful despite the fact that they'd been with Jesus quite some time now. They'd seen his power. They'd seen him 
heal the sick. They'd seen him preach with authority. They'd seen him cast out demons, and yet they were still panicking. They're saying to Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Aren't you the one that asked us to come out here? We obeyed you, and this is what we get for it? From, from our vantage point, from 30,000 feet, it's, it's, it's hard for us to imagine how the disciples could doubt Jesus in this moment. You know, we say, come on, guys, you, you've, you've been with Jesus, you've seen his regard for total strangers, and yet you doubt his regard for you, his disciples, his inner circle? It's easy for us to judge the disciples for their fear and their unbelief, but if we step back and we begin to honestly examine our own lives, we can see that we can be just as faithless and we can be just as fearful as the disciples were. Now, don't hear me wrong. There, there is a prerequisite faith that is required for a follower of Christ. One is not a true Christian unless they believe in Jesus, unless they put their faith in their Savior and be genuinely converted. But believing in Christ does not mean that we will have constant assurance in his love for us, in his faithfulness. Even Christians who, by definition, have placed their faith in Jesus will be liable to doubt and worry and fear because we live in a broken world. We reside in these fallen bodies of flesh. We are tempted and lied to by the enemy. And so we will still question at times whether or not God really loves us. We all know this to be true from our experience, don't we? We know that though we may have been saved from sin, it does not necessitate that we are wholly saved from our doubts and fears. I can say that I'm at times oddly encouraged by the lack of faith that I see from certain biblical heroes. Uh, take Abraham, for example. Abraham is held up as a picture of faith in Hebrews. He is literally in the hall of faith left his homeland, left his family and everything he knew to follow God, to obey God. And yet, when hardship arises in multiple occasions, we see, we see Abraham fall back and not trust God. In Egypt, he sees men eyeing his wife, and he gets scared that, that they're going to attack him, that they're going to steal his wife. And so he concocts this whole plan, tries to take matters into his own hands, lies, he doesn't trust God. And then again, we see that as he's getting older, as Sarah's getting older, they've been promised a son. The son isn't coming. So they take matters into their own hands. They don't trust God to provide. He sleeps instead with his servant girl. This man of faith, when facing hardship, doesn't trust God as he ought. <coughs> Accordingly, you and I, Although we may have saving faith in Christ, we will still struggle with unbelief. It may seem easy to trust God when we are not facing hardship, but when trials come, and we know that they will, this landslide of weakness and insecurity and unbelief comes rushing into view, and we are tempted to doubt and to fear. We're all guilty of unbelief. 
We're all guilty of not trusting Christ as we ought. And our lives and our actions and our thoughts, if not our words, resound with the disciples when they say, Jesus, don't you care? We're in trouble here. Where are you? What are you going to do about this? God is not unaware of our propensity to doubt and to fear. And that's why when you read the scriptures, you see again and again the command, do not fear, take heart, be courageous, fear not. What's the reasoning for this? Is it, is it because I'm so strong and I can get through this? No. Again, it's fear not because I am your God. I am with you. We serve a good and patient Lord. And Jesus was not quick to dismiss the disciples, to write them off. He was long-suffering with them despite their lack of faith. He was compassionate. He did not desert them. They struggled again and again with faith, and yet Jesus did not leave them. It's this Jesus. He is the reason that we can surrender our fears and instead live lives of faith. If you look at your fears and focus on them, you will be overcome. But if you look to Jesus, to your Savior, He will empower you to overcome. Why is this though? Why can we fully trust in Jesus? Why can we trust that He will empower us to overcome? Well, this brings us to our fourth and final observation, which is that while Jesus was fully man, he was also fully divine. Awoken by the disciples in the midst of this raging storm, Jesus need do nothing but say, peace, be still. And there was a great calm. If you've lived in the Pacific Northwest for any amount of time, you've probably found yourself in a great windstorm. And if you've ever walked outside surrounded by trees, you know there is a lot of noise. It is just this roaring noise. And to imagine the disciples in this sort of storm in the middle of a sea in a small boat, and the storm is raging, and then it is calm. You would think there would be rejoicing. You would think they would be throwing a party, that they would be thrilled. But the text says that they were filled with great fear. The disciples weren't reassured. They were even more terrified. And this is the response that we see again and again in Scripture when people find themselves standing in the presence of God. And having watched Jesus exercise this power over creation, these men are starting to connect the dots and say, this man might be God. We see this link between Jesus' power over nature and his divinity supported throughout Scripture. We see first that Jesus was active in creation. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, that's referring to Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then again, in Colossians 1, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him 
and for him. So surely the one who was present, who was active in creation, can speak to and subdue creation. We see that Jesus was active in creation, and then we see in the scriptures that God alone wields this sort of power over his creation and over the sea. Psalm 33 verse 7 says, God gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. And then if we look into Exodus, where, where it says Moses stretched out his hand toward the sea, who does it tell us is, is the actor? Well, in Exodus 14, it says Moses stretched out his hand and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. The only one to ever calm storms and exercise dominion over creation in Scripture is God. We see men do miracles, but it is only God that controls creation. To look at one last biblical example of this, we need look no further than the book of Jonah. At the beginning of the book of Jonah, the disobedient prophet Jonah is commanded by God to go to Nineveh and to call the people to uh, repent. But Jonah's not particularly fond of the Ninevites. He doesn't want them to repent, and so instead, he boards a boat headed the opposite direction towards Tarshish to try and flee from God. And as we read in Jonah chapter 1, we see striking similarities between the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus calming the storm. Let's read some of this from Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Similar to our story in Mark 4, suddenly there is this storm that comes upon the ship that Jonah is in. In verse 5 we read, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Just as the disciples were panicking, so these sailors were panicking says, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Jesus and Jonah were both sleeping through this storm. They both knew what was going on in different ways. So in verse 6 we read, so the captain came and said to Jonah, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. Just as the disciples came to Jesus, the, the captain here comes to Jonah and says, don't you care that we're dying? Cry out to your God. Do something. It's that point in the story of Jonah that he comes clean. He says, look, it's, it's because of me that God has sent this storm on you. And he tells them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. We read then in verse 15 where they say, where it says, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Where there was a mighty storm, suddenly nothing. Lastly, we see in verse 16, Then the, me, the men feared, God, feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Both the sailors and the disciples who had been in the midst of these storms and witnessed them calming to nothing feared God greatly, even more than they feared the initial storm. And so it's remarkable, the similarities here, but 
we recognize as we look more closely that there's one key difference in these stories. In Jonah, the action that precipitates the calming of the storm is the sacrifice of the disobedient prophet Jonah to the sea. Jonah essentially says to the sailors, here's what you got to do to be saved. Throw me over, I will die, and you will live. And in this way, Jonah gave himself up. He sacrificed himself to save the sailors. And this is a unique detail that we don't have in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus simply says, Peace, be still, and the calm comes upon the seas. But there's more to this story than meets the eye. And if we read Mark chapter 4 in the context of the greater narrative of the Bible, we see where Jesus in Matthew 12 is speaking to the scribes. And he, he says to them, referring to himself, Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. And what he means is this. Yes, the sacrifice of Jonah calmed the sea. But I have come to calm more than just an isolated windstorm. I've come to calm the storms of this life, to quiet every wave that you might experience. The sin and death and hardship that plague this world will be no more. Jonah appealed to God as a willing sacrifice, as a sinful man who had stirred up God's righteous anger through his disobedience. But Jesus would willingly appeal to God as the sinless God-man who would appease the the righteous wrath of God by giving himself as a worthy, eternal sacrifice for the sin's of the world. Jesus went to the cross and faced the storm of God's good, righteous wrath that would have otherwise overcome you and I. And this Jesus, he is the reason. Because of what he has done, because of the life he lived, because of the sacrifice that he offered, he is the reason that we can endure hardship and trial He is our hope. Our hope, thankfully, is not in the quality or quantity of our own faith. No, our hope is in the object of our faith, in the reigning sovereign King Jesus. If you're listening today, you're going to have to deal with the question that Mark poses so poetically at the end of this account. At the end of the narrative, he says, Who then is this? It's a question that invites response. Who is Jesus? And how you answer that question will fundamentally determine whether or not you will be saved from the storm of God's righteous wrath. On the day of reckoning, will you stand before the God of the universe, this perfect judge who, who demands perfection, in only righteousness. Will you stand before him and attempt to account for your sin on your own? If you will, you will be as helpless as the disciples, as the sailors, on a boat in the middle of the sea, in the middle of a hurricane. You will certainly be overcome. Or will you seek shelter? Will you seek refuge? And Jesus Christ, who willingly bore 
the judgment of God for sinners. I pray that that would be the case for each of us, that we would find our refuge in Jesus, that we would find our righteousness in Jesus, that we would find our justification in Jesus. My hope today is that as we read and meditate on this text, that we would each be stirred up to look to Jesus. If you look at your retirement portfolio or your paycheck, your bank account, or your hope, you're going to be crushed when the market crashes. You're going to be crushed when the unemployment rate skyrockets. Look instead to the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If you look to your children and esteem them and put your hope in their obedience and their conformity and their performance, you'll be, con- you'll be crushed when they make decisions that don't align with your values, when they go their own way and make decisions that you don't agree with. Look instead to Jesus, the perfect Son of God who never sinned and who offers forgiveness and grace to your children when they do. If you look to your health and prize that and find your your confidence and your physical well-being, you will be crushed when sickness comes for you. And it will. It may not be coronavirus, but something will come for you at some point. Look instead to Jesus, who heals the sick and raises the dead and offers eternal life for anyone that would believe in him. The story of Jesus calming the storm is not a pep talk. It's not an inspirational speech that encourages you to try harder to have more faith or to to, to buck up and get through it. No, it's a reminder to look to Jesus, to set your eyes on Jesus, to let him be your hope, to believe in him and to confess your unbelief. And if you do that, he will sustain you. He will be your anchor, regardless of what life brings. Would you pray with me? Father, many of us find ourselves in a season of hardship and doubt, stress and anxiety. We are uncertain. We recognize in this time, Lord, our weakness. That a little microscopic virus could stop the world as we know it, could derail life. Father, we need you. Help us not to trust in chariots and horses and the things that this world provides, but to trust in your son, Jesus, who offers eternal life, eternal security. Remind us, Lord, of your great love for us. Help us to set our faith not in ourselves and what we can control, but in you. Help us to look not to today or tomorrow, to the plans that we can make, but help us to trust in the plans that you have for us. Because we know that you will work all things together for good for those who love you. We thank you for your son Jesus who came to us that we might be saved. We pray that you would Forgive us for our unbelief that you would increase our faith as we look on to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.